Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. Good morning. You may be seated. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Lena Van Wyke, and I direct our farm ministry here at Church of the Redeemer. First, would you pray with me? Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Lord, come and reveal yourself to us this morning, that we may be transfigured in your coming kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is the last Sunday of the liturgical season of Epiphany, the season between Christmas and Lent, which starts this coming week with Ash Wednesday. Epiphany, as we've been repeating over and over again in the last nine weeks, is a season of unveiling and revealing. It orients the church to the fact that the Lord has made himself manifest, has made himself seen and known and glorious in the person of Jesus Christ. As the church, Epiphany is a time when we celebrate that in Jesus, the prophecy of Isaiah 60 is fulfilled. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the people. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will appear over you. Nations shall come to your light, and, the, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Epiphany is a season of light and brilliance, like a bright, sunny, and snowy day in February. Not like a day like today. So there's no better passage to end on than the incredible account of the transfiguration in Luke 9, when Christ's appearance is transformed and his very body glows with the glory of God. It is such a privilege to explore this scripture with you all this morning. Most of you know that I have a nine-month-old, my first child. My life looks radically different than it did a year ago. In the old way, I used to write sermons with large, luxurious stretches of open time. That seems like a distant dream. Um, and I'm sure the parents of young children, um, y'all will attest that it seems impossible to carve out time to focus on just one thing. So as I was praying that God would somehow meet me in the chaos of this week, um, these past couple weeks, and bring his revealing, his focus, um, the answer came through my sweet fellows mentee, Naomi Wagner. I was supposed to be mentoring her, but I asked her if she could help me with my sermon by sitting in the passage with me, trusting that the Lord would do the mentoring that day. So she and I sat at my kitchen table with Lily at her high chair, keeping the baby content by giving her lots of tribute in the form of yogurt and banana, as we did this exploratory exercise with Luke 9. It's a method of really sitting in a passage of scripture and being playful and imaginative, asking a lot of I wonder questions. What does the scene look like? How is that character feeling? Why did the writer choose that word? We often move so quickly through a passage of scripture, barely listening, trying to quickly pull out the application and to move on. But this way of reading invites us to just sit and stay a while, not to find concrete answers even, but to invite the Holy Spirit into our imaginations, to sanctify our imaginations. If this is a season where you can't join a formal Bible study for whatever reason, you can easily try this with a friend over a cup of tea with any passage of scripture. The key is to retrieve your childlike curiosity. 
It's like the wondering questions that our children ask during catechesis of the Good Shepherd. So I'm gonna share some of my conversation um, with Naomi, but before I do that, I want to invite you to practice this this morning. I'm gonna read the passage again slowly, and I want you to close your eyes if that's helpful, and I want you to craft just one I wonder statement, one thing you're curious about in the passage. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up upon the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzlingly white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. And he was saying these things. A cloud came over and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. What do you wonder? It would be a lot of fun to pass the mic around right now and host a church-wide Bible study and hear all of your musings and wonderings. We'd be here till four, but I'd love it. But I will share with you the conversation that Naomi and I had. I took notes because it's amazing to see what the Lord can do when two are gathered around a scripture and are just curious. Now, granted, big asterisk, Naomi is one of the brightest humans I've ever met, and her dad is a New Testament scholar, who is one of Judson's and my professors at Duke. So she takes it up a couple of notches higher than most of us would, um, but it was, it was a great time. So I also quote myself in the third person, which is just awkward, but we'll just roll with it. <laughs> Naomi, I wonder about the disciples being sleepy. You'd think if they saw something so spectacular, they'd be wide awake. Lena, I wonder how Jesus feels about them being sleepy. Is he frustrated, like when they are sleepy in the Garden of Gethsemane? Are we supposed to think of that passage that comes later on in Luke? Or what if there is purposefulness to their sleepiness, so that the disciples can be there to witness, but Jesus can have a private moment with Abraham and Moses to talk about his death? Naomi, it says the appearance of his face changed. I think of how Moses' face was changed when he saw God on Mount Sinai. Are we supposed to think of that scene? Lena, does it just mean that it's just Jesus' normal face, but glowing? Or does his face look like a different person? Does it look like his resurrected face? Naomi, is there a significance to Jesus choosing three disciples, and then there are three holy ones, he, Elijah, and Moses? It reminds me of Abraham hosting the three holy guests 
and the famous icon of that scene. Lena, I wonder what Elijah and Moses are telling Jesus about his death. Are they telling him new information that he doesn't already know? Naomi, or are they offering him comfort in the way that angels minister to him? Lena, I wonder if God, it's a little hot. I wonder if God sends humans rather than angels because they have been through death and understand its pain. Naomi, actually, doesn't Elijah not die but ascends into heaven still alive? <laughs> Lena, good point. <laughs> Naomi, I wonder if this encounter is Jesus meeting his heroes, growing up as a Jewish young man and always hearing about Moses and Elijah. But because Jesus is both God and man, it's also Moses and Elijah meeting their hero, the perfect redeemed human and God himself. Naomi, I wonder what Moses and Elijah's bodies looked like, like hologram projections or real bodies. If Peter offers them shelter, maybe they look like living people to him. Lena, are these the resurrected bodies of Moses and Elijah? Is this an instance of divine time travel from the future resurrected age of new creation? And so on and so forth. We just pondered and meandered slowly through the passage over a cup of tea. I love how this method really calls us to really slowly chew on scripture and taste the levels of flavor rather than just gulping it down like we gulp everything down in our very fast age. When you watch a small child examining an object, they often gaze upon it with a look of concentration, turning it about in their hands and looking at it from every angle. That's how we should meditate on scripture, asking the Holy Spirit to reveal the many layers of meaning. When we do this, we start to see that every part of scripture is full of signs and references that point to other stories in scripture. Tim Mackey from the Bible Project calls these hyperlinks. They link the passage to other passages. The Bible is a big, complex, interwoven tapestry telling the united story of what God is up to in his creation. This passage, the Transfiguration, is particularly rich with symbolism and hyperlinks, connecting Jesus' mountaintop experience with Elijah's and Moses's. Both Elijah and Moses are figures of the Old Testament who experience the terrifyingly glorious presence of God on the top of Mount Sinai. Moses represents the tradition of the law, and Elijah represents the tradition of the prophets. They are the ones who called Israel into holiness and obedience to God. And here they are, visiting Jesus on a high mountaintop, when the presence of God comes as a holy cloud, as it does in the book of Exodus to Moses. But is the passage just saying that Jesus is a prophet like Elijah or like Moses? Just another attempt for God to try unsuccessfully to speak to Israel? In Luke 9, verses 18 through 20, in the passage right before the transfiguration, Jesus asked his disciples, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. This transfiguration moment answers this question, who is Jesus. It reinforces Peter's answer that he is the Christ, the Messiah. Jesus clearly isn't Elijah or Moses, Moses risen or reincarnated, as here they are speaking to Jesus. No, Jesus is the holy incarnate Lord, the one that Moses and Elijah just point to in their own prophetic ministries. 
he is the one they serve. When Elijah and Moses saw the presence of God during their own mountaintop moments, God spoke to them, but he did not declare that they, that he, that they were his anointed ones. In this breathtaking moment, Jesus is like the burning bush, a human glowing with the very presence of God because he is God. Peter, James, John, Elijah, and Moses are all just witnesses of his glory on that peak high above the world. Nowhere else in the Gospels does the voice of the Father speak directly to the disciples. He says, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. He says something very similar at the Jesus' baptism. You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. But the Father says that directly to Jesus, not to his followers. Here God is speaking directly to Peter, James, and John. So no wonder they are terrified. God speaks to them with very simple language, exceedingly simple. He doesn't go into a lot of explanatory detail about what it means that Jesus is his chosen son. He just simply says, listen to him. It's like the simple language we use with children when introducing them to someone they need to trust and obey. Daughter, this is your teacher. You need to listen to her. And so in many ways, the disciples are childlike in this passage. They are drowsy, prone to napping through a once in a lifetime or rather once in cosmic history kind of event. And their response to seeing two long gone giants of their faith greet their rabbi is to want to build tents. It reminds me of the insatiable and unexplainable urge every second grader has to build a fort at every opportunity. When my sister was in elementary school, our dining room table was a permanent fort structure that my mom just embraced. Granted, Peter is likely thinking of the Festival of Booths, the Jewish festival of constructing tents to remember the Exodus, so it's not completely out of left field. But the narrator says he didn't know what he was saying, much like you would say of a child who is saying something really inappropriate or silly given their naivete. There is something in the human spirit, in our childlikeness, that is obsessed with building stuff to please God. We want to respond to his holiness by building a temple, a cathedral, a church fellowship hall. We are motivated to action. Peter is motivated to action in this awe-inspiring moment. But God's holy presence interrupts him as soon as Peter speaks, as if to say, why don't you just hold your horses for a moment and experience the fullness of my glory? It's not as if erecting structures for the kingdom is a bad thing. But there is a time and a place for everything, and often we miss the opportunities to just be still and revel in the very presence of God. I have experienced this so profoundly in my ministry work in the last five years. It's just so easy to want to keep moving, keep building, keep growing the farm. With Peter, I say, it is so good that we're here, Lord. Let us build you a really wonderful church property with all these nifty things. Let me build you a sandcastle, Dad. I feel my childlike need to impress God. But God says in response, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Why don't you focus less on what you can do for me, Lena, and more on my son and all his splendor and on following his guidance. With him, you can build something so much more spectacular than the tents you have in mind. Let him build the farm. Let him build Redeemer. What are the areas in your own life where you are trying to impress God or others? Things you might want to set aside, at least temporarily, so that you can spend time in the cloud of his presence. 
spend time in adoration, gazing on the transfigured face of Jesus? What are the areas of your life that you need to surrender to his control and to his glory? The thing that haunts me about this passage is pondering the conversation that Jesus has with Elijah and Moses about his impending death. The Greek word here is translated as departure, that we translate as departure in English, is literally the word exodus. They come to discuss his exodus with him. Moses brought the liberating exodus of his people from Egypt, but Christ's exodus, his death, will liberate all humanity. This new exodus will take us all from the bondage of this world and its evil into the eternal promised land of new creation. But at what price? What price does Jesus have to pay to free us all from slavery? The price of an agonizing death. Here at the Transfiguration, Christ's body is lit up with beauty and astonishing radiance. But in just a short amount of time, at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and the Romans elite, his body will be ravaged. As the prophecy about the suffering servant in Isaiah 53 says, Quote, his appearance was so marred, so disfigured, beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. The beautiful, illuminated chosen one will be disfigured by the worst that Satan has to throw at him. I can't fathom what it was like for Jesus to know what was going to happen to him, knowing what was required of him to free humanity from evil and death. I really wonder what Elijah and Moses said to him about his crucifixion. What words of comfort did they have for him, as Naomi wondered? How did they minister to his spirit? No other human in Jesus' life could really minister to him or prepare him for his death. Not his clueless disciples, not the religious leaders, not even his loving mother. So maybe the Lord sends these two mighty humans of old to love on his beloved son, to prepare him for what is going to happen to his glorious body. But the bodies of Elijah and Moses also point Jesus and his disciples to the very real eternal life that awaits on the other side of the gruesome crucifixion. We aren't given specifics about whether these are the resurrected bodies of Moses and Elijah, but I like to think that they are, and that this is, as I wondered above, a super cool instance of divine time travel from new creation into the present age. They appear in glory to bear testimony to the glory that is our destination in Christ because of what he accomplishes in Jerusalem. Let me say that again. They appear in glory to bear testimony to the glory that is our destination in Christ because of what Jesus accomplishes in Jerusalem. Because of his new exodus, praise be to God. Makes me want to skip right over Lent and start worshiping in Easter style. But we need to sit in Lent, to sit with Jesus in contemplation of the suffering about to befall him. We need to comprehend the full weight of what our glorious Lord has done for us. It's February and it's Black History Month, and this passage makes me think of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King's final days before his assassination. He who took up his own cross and followed Jesus as a martyr. The night before Dr. King was killed, he was in Memphis for a protest of the sanitation workers. My mother lived in Memphis at the time. She was seven years old. And there were so many threats against his life so the night before he died, he gave this haunting and prophetic speech as if he knew the next day he would die, clearly with the transfiguration of Jesus in his mind, clearly with Christ's exodus on his mind. 
I'm going to let his voice be the final voice that we hear this morning. This is the end of his famous mountaintop speech. It really doesn't matter what happens now. I left Atlanta this morning, and as we got started on the plane, there were six of us. The pilot said over the public address system, we are sorry for the delay. But we have Dr. Martin Luther King on the plane. And to be sure that all of the bags were checked. And to be sure that nothing would be wrong on the plane, we had to check out everything carefully. And we've had the plane protected and guarded all night. And then I got into Memphis. And some began to say the threats, or talk about the threats that were out. Or what would happen to me from some of our sick white brothers? Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now, because I've been to the mountaintop. And I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. But I want you to know the night that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. My eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Church, let's stand and say together what we believe.